welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical education, the classical world, old books, philosophy. We talked about a painting once. Um, and well, a door. And, and we talked about a, a door. No, no, multiple doors. Multiple doors. We've done multiple episodes on doors. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's our mm-hmm. vibe. And uh, so, yeah. Gates of Paradise, so, Gates of Hell or whatever it's called. Yep. Uh, we are three guys who love reading. Oh. and huh? We love doors. We also love doors. Yeah. Going through them, closing them, uh, opening them to you, the listener. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yep. uh, anyway, uh, my name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined with, with, I'm joined by AJ Hannenberg. That's me. And Thomas Magby. Hello. And today we are talking about my favorite... Existentialism. If you could sound a little, oh, so um, less either less sarcastic or less miserable. No, about? you're right. That that's not fair. Um, no, uh, AJ is talking about an essay I've never read. Uh, Thomas, have you read this paper yeah. before? Thomas has read it because Thomas it's a, is it's a speech, isn't literate, it? Or a speech or whatever. It was originally a lecture. Lecture, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yep. And uh, and this is sort of I don't know if this fits under. Uh, we've been we've we've had like a couple of episodes on. On existentialist thought before we, you did an episode on Camus. We did the stranger, we did the stranger. and then we did the myth of Sisyphus, yes. which is Camus' "Why should I not commit suicide?" essay. And then we did a Kierkegaard episode. Then we did, a, which was yeah, your was episode. So this episode. is fitting in an oeuvre. Yeah. Well, I is it my turn to do an existentialism episode? Yeah. You want to take over? Yeah, I'll take. I it have from notes. Well, uh, do I have you to use your them. notes? No, no, I'll use my own notes. Yeah, that's I prepared fine. My, that's not okay. You don't have to, but if you can just will it into existence, yeah, if you want exactly. To. Because all episodes are meaningless anyway. It's whatever we make out of them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, anyway, Hamburg. It's, it's the point is that you make them. The point is that like oh, I endeavor word. to try to make a good episode because the ep- the essence of the episode precedes. Nope, the existence of the episode precedes its essence. I forget that. No, no, no. The the, other, the, the essence, essence of the episode precedes its existence. You have a design. No, no, no. That's not that's not what uh, Sartre argues, isn't it? Not, well, it? Humans are different. Oh, okay. The thanks. podcast is something else entirely. Wow. Oh, I've got oh, an example. <laughs> I did some research, boys. Oh my gosh! All right, so ready. All right, so let me take you on a journey, listener, uh, on me trying to figure out what to do for this episode. So, <laughs> first, this I is thought like how the sausage is made. Yeah, yeah I know. I, I thought, hey, why don't I read some Sartre? Right, that'll be fun. So I started reading reading nausea, and whoo boy, it was a whole thing. So I said, maybe we'll do something else. So I started reading Marco Polo, The Adventures of Marco Polo, which I will say, the first couple chapters are great. They describe Mar- Marco Polo's adventures in the East. Okay. And then after that is almost a... Did they find him in the pool? Did they find, actually find him? No, they never did. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, after yeah. that, it's just a recounting of the cities that he passed through and how they're governed and like their yeah. weird landmarks and stuff. And that, that I think gets pretty... Pretty ho-hum for a podcast. I did an entire episode on Herodotus in Egypt, and that's exactly what he did. So look. But yours had water horses. Yeah, I thought I it was had water great. horses. That's exactly right. So I, I thought maybe not this, and then I started working on my unicorn episode, the one on Genghis Khan, and that's, I'm no. still working on it. So you are still working on it. This yeah, it's still coming. It's just okay. a really, it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around because they, they name a lot of names and don't make the genealogies very clear. And so for me to really nail down everything that's happening, it's going to be a big project. Okay. So started working on that. And then I thought maybe we'll do Waiting for Godot. And uh, I, I read Waiting for Godot last night, actually. It's a wonderful play. But the very conceit of the play is that nothing happens. Yep. And I thought, man, it'll be impossible to get a, play out of, or a podcast out of this because the plot will take roughly two minutes to recount, and basically, someone said it best when they said, uh, it's a play in which nothing happens twice. Yeah, yes. There's a part one yeah. where nothing happens, and then there's, there's a part two. two where nothing happens, and it's an, a, a play based on absurdism, right? 
that we are confronted with our lack of meaning, right? They're what? just waiting. Are there, there are two characters in that, right? There's actually four. So there's two two well, main, main ones. Vladimir, who goes, they call him Didi, mm-hmm. and then Estragon, who goes by Gogo. And then there's two other characters that show up. Lucky, who is a servant with a a rope around his neck, and then his possessor, Pozo. Okay. Why don't we just do a reading of that? Uh, I mean, we could. If, if sometime we want to do an, a double episode where it's where it's a reading, that would be actually, I think, a fantastic couple of episodes. It's, uh, Graham did an episode that was primarily him reading The Wasteland. There, there was commentary also, but probably three-fourths of it was the reading of the poem. Yeah, but, I don't know if that was one of our like heavy-hitter episodes. So. <laughs> but this one would be like a it. real joy, I think, I think to have <laughs> read... <laughs> Your episode was bad. Your this episode was good. also a real joy. <laughs> We're trying to make good episodes now. <clears throat> oh, that that was that really was like the turning point of the podcast. What like, does that mean? Oh, that was like the bottom. I don't think it was that bad. I, oh, I thought it was fine. I oh. thought maybe where I described doors for 45 minutes <laughs> was, the, the, was the, the bottom. One, the one we get made fun of when people email us, it's always about um, the, the painting. Penguins. It's always The Last Judgment is the one that people laugh at. But The Last really? Judgment was so good. It's a that great one episode. was a great episode. But it, it's it, it's that and Euclid and the door ones. You need to watch it on YouTube because like we show the pictures. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The doors one was, yeah. was I granted it was a little rough. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, it led me pretty much full circle all the way back to absurdism and, and by offshoot existentialism. Sure. And so I ended up back with Jean-Paul Sartre and thought I'd shoot for an essay or a, an essay that is based on a lecture he did um, called Existentialism is a Humanism, in which he tries to answer some of the, I don't know, ob- objections that people have about existentialism and explain existentialism in general, because it seems like a lot of people don't really know what it is. Like people talk about their existentialist crisis all the time. And I've had students say it when really what they mean is I'm stressed. I'm stressed. <laughs> sure. And they don't know what an existential crisis is, yeah. right? Like what that actually means. Right. And I've used the word admittedly, and much to my shame, not fully understanding what existentialism is. And it's something we throw around at paintings and art and all kinds of things when what we mean is this person appears to have a lot of feelings and angst. And I think part of that comes from a lot of the language around existentialism. They use words like anguish and despair and uh, abandonment. And angst. And angst. All of those things are in there, but they don't necessarily mean the things we do. And so we, we attach anything that has to do with those words angst and abandonment to existentialism. existentialism and right. I think that that's probably an unfair um, equation, right? Yeah. We, we can, it's, it's not okay to equivocate those things. Yeah. We'll get into it later. I, I view this as essentially if you're, if you are in any way interested in existentialism, you can either get at what it is by reading works of existentialism or just read that. Like, I think this is the best introduction to what existentialism is. He's trying, it's, it's, a, it's as straightforward as this philosophy gets. It is, um, nothing, it's not hidden in a story. It's like upfront, this is what the worldview is. And he compares it to other alternatives. And I forget how long the lecture is. Oh, it's short. You yeah. could read it in a couple hours, two, yeah. two, so, two and a half. So in the same way that your episode a while ago on the communist manifesto, if like you're interested in what communism is, go read the manifesto. It's really short. It's condensed. That's what existentialism is a humanism is also. It's the most condensed version of what is existentialism actually. Yeah, I found it to be like refreshingly straightforward compared to some of the existentialist reading you can do, which kind of veils the worldview in a character or compared to like the Kierkegaard stuff we talked about before. He'll get kind of lost in what he's trying to say. This is just like a straightforward. This is what here is what we think. And here is me answering some of the objections that other people have brought up. So Donaldson, let's do it as not a fan of existentialism. What are your biggest? Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe Ah. I've had the wrong uh, definition of it in my whole life. I'm hoping so. 
I don't think so. Okay. I think maybe your beefs are the beefs that most people have. So name one or two of your beefs with existentialism and really quick. And I'm like, it's almost quiz show, but since Thomas already is familiar with the essay, what is existentialism? You ask me? Yeah. Um, A philosophy that puts your, like your being at the, at the center of it. Is that fair? That's interesting. Okay. Like it's, um, your will is, I also, maybe I'm getting confused with uh, Nietzsche, but like, uh, the important actions that one does is like your willpower and your consent, your consent to existence, uh, or your, you know, your, uh, uh, rebellion against it. Okay. So rebellion against existence with existence or be- consenting or being to existence thing. and saying like, you know, I know it's the matrix, but I choose to eat the steak anyway. Like that kind of thing. Okay. So plunging yourself into the matrix. It's pretty, yeah. Can I, pre- uh, you're not asking me, but I'm going to answer anyway. Kay. So if I can preface my bad answer, there are only two things that have like really stuck with me from this essay. I don't know if you'll actually, if you'll talk about these. One of them is the phrase existence precedes essence. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is his story about um, a restaurant waiter and like figuring out what to do in the face of, I think, whether to go to war or not. I, I'm sure I'm getting these details wrong. Yeah, close. Okay, but Th- Those two things are definitely in there. So then, so that first one then is what I remember of how he talks about this view. It's the existentialism is the view that existence precedes essence. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that you are before you have any meaning. So, um, whereas a Christian perspective, he contrasts it with, um, I don't know what, if I'm jumping ahead or, or if I'm getting it all wrong, but like in a traditionally religious view, essence precedes existence. Mm -hmm. You have some type of being, you have some type of definition of what it is to be human before you're born. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you're born and then you kind of like live into that essence. Whereas under existentialism, you you are born, but there's nothing before you obligating you to do one thing or another. You must figure that out for yourself. Your existence, your I breathe and I turn um, oxygen into carbon dioxide happens before there's a meaning to why do I turn oxygen into carbon and dioxide. And then the whole and then your goal or the or the pleasure of existence is your ability to figure that out or forge it for yourself. I would assume he says that. All I remember is that part of the distinction between others is others say you have an essence before existentialism says you don't have an essence yeah. before or you don't have an essence before that dictates how you must live your life. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty good definition. Okay. okay. So based on these and audience, don't worry, I'm going to clarify all of these things. Once we get into the essay, so I'm just, I'm just trying understand. to get, uh, get the, you know, the feel of two educated men on what existentialism is before we dive in. So what are your beefs with the philosophy? What, what makes you so cranky about it, Donaldson? Um, that you don't... Donaldson, why are you so cranky? Is that... Why am I so cranky? <laughs> uh, uh, the beef is... Well, one is sort of a, an observation is, okay, if we are all... Uh, if there's existence precedes essence and we're all sort of thrown into this world carte blanche, then how come so many people end up having the same conclusions about right and wrong and good and bad and these kinds of things. So like, um, that's more of like a logical question or that's like maybe an anthropological question. So one of the beefs is if if we define our reality, if we define our reality, then how is it that, um, we can have something, we can have like something like we're, we're at the, in the appendix to the abolition of man. Lewis talks about the Tao and he says, look at all of these different cultures who are separated by time and space and language, but are saying relatively general, generally similar, not, not word for word and not completely 
synonymous idea for idea, but relatively similar concepts about what human beings prefer and want and have in society, like the betrayal of friends, right? Um, and so that, that, the first beef is sort of like a, a challenge or a question of like, wonder what the anthropology, what, yeah, how would an existentialist sort of answer that uh, observation? Um, and maybe they have one. Uh, and then the other beef is that um, it always, to me, feels like it is a, uh, an intellectualizing uh, uh, veneer for somebody just to be a punk <laughs> and, um, you know, not be nice to his mother because he doesn't have to. Because he has no obligation Because he has no obligation to do it. So and it's just, he, uh, it lets us wants do whatever to be, we want. It's like, even if, if he wants to do it, he'll do it because he wants to. And if he does, you know, so it's really, it's just like, um, it's like a complete abandonment to the appetites is, is my beef with it. Okay, abandonment to the appetites. Oh, you're writing this down? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm writing down notes? a beast because I'm going to see yeah, if it gets answered. Notes. I mean, you're the one leading the episode. Why are you taking notes? I feel like we should be taking notes. Well, I, I'm, I'm hoping that these questions will get answered eventually. And if these beefs are different than the ones he actually brings up. So his, his lecture that he gave was intended to answer the common objections to existential. Oh, oh, do you want to give, give yours? Sorry. I, yeah, I don't have beefs. I just, my general view is that all ideologies, all philosophies come out of some fundamental truth. I don't think people are like fundamentally deluded when they come up with, this is not a beef that I have. This is just my comment on fair-mindedness and listening to people. So I think existentialism gets at something true, but in the same way that we talked about stoicism, it might overemphasize the point that it has to make that we do have an obligation to make something of our lives, to make something of our birth. And that's not something that's just given to us. Um, so I guess if, if I have a beef, it's to say it overemphasizes whatever that one thing is. Um, but I still, I still think there's some like fundamental truth to it of there's an anxiety to living. Is my life meaningful? Does it put bounds on that though? Does Uh, it say like there are certain things that one ought not do with one's life? Um, even if you've gone into, gone into it like full blood. It does. Okay. It does put bounds, although the bounds are strangely established. I definitely don't remember the bounds. I do remember when we talked about your, which one did you say was the one about suicide? Absurdism. No, no, the, no, the no book. Sisyphus. Oh, Sisyphus. the myth of Sisyphus. That that one ends up taking a moral stance, but doesn't really have a foundation for its moral stance. It is uh, rebellion against the absurdity of life lends life its grand nobility. Yeah. But... How, where do you get your definition of nobility? Like, because if, if life is completely absurd and there's meaninglessness, right. then nothing is noble and it doesn't matter what you do. Right. So, right. Just, so, so summary point on just like how I view all these things is there's probably something core at the center of it that is a true thing. So positive, but the negative is that it's overemphasized to the point of saying this is the all encompassing one thing when in fact, you know, there, you know, the, I, I derive great joy from like my social relationships, which put obligation on me, which would contradict some piece of existentialism. Yeah. As I understand it. Again, you've read this more recently. Okay, great. Is it like codified acedia? Is, is that what? Well, let's get right, into let's it. Let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's dive in. So I think we, enough of the preamble. So the, the objections that he is attempting to answer, there are, there are four that I could glean from this essay. And remember audience, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm no philosophy professor. Nope, so this is my, my basic understanding nope. here. Uh, so objection number one, that, existentialism encourages people to remain in a state of quietism and despair, basically finding meaning in a contemplative, resigned philosophy, right? If all solutions are barred, then we have to regard any action in this world as futile. 
And so at least we are, at last we arrive at a contemplative philosophy, right? Doing things don't matter. Mm. And so we are, we are plunged into thinking a lot, which is bourgeois, right? That's a bourgeois luxury. Mm. It's luxurious to sit and think all the time. And so that is one of the things that the communists would always say about existentialism is you end up being just a, a thinker on a log and because, you know, doing stuff doesn't, doesn't accomplish anything. My association is almost the exact opposite in that existentialism is so focused on the creation or the doing of something. I can see why they would say that, but yep. again, I would associate that more with like a stoicism, but okay. And we'll get there. Yeah. So objection number two, that it emphasizes what is despicable and abominable about humanity for so- exposing all that is sordid, suspicious and base while ignoring beauty and the brighter side of human nature. That's what, I right? think so it focuses on the yes. negative. Yes. It's very, it's very dark. Um, or that doesn't produce beauty. Okay. So that's number two. Number three is that it overlooks humanity's solidarity, right? You are alone and it considers man an isolated being. So we are, we are cut off from our neighbor, right? Uh, is another one of the, the objections. Sure. That's a part of what I, I view as the negative of it. Sure. Okay. And then number four for denying the validity and reality of human enterprise, for inasmuch as we choose to ignore God's commandments and all eternal values, all that remains is strictly gratuitous. We can do whatever we please and are incapable of finding fault within the points of view of or actions of others. So it basically precludes judgment. We, we can never judge others based on what they are doing, right? Because we, there, we don't have an appeal to some sort of standard. Exactly. You can, if you are creating all your meaning, then who are you to say that your buddy is wrong sure. in his meaning, right? So those are the four that he is going to attempt to answer with this. I think, from my own opinion, some more successfully and some less. Is he missing anything in any of your opinion? Well, do you think he's? I think there. Some of yours have gone unanswered. Okay. So we'll we'll come back around to your objections after we answer these four. And I think some of these four, like some of your objections, are are answered in his four. And then I think some of your other objections are less well accounted for. Okay. So let's get into. Sarge would say that he thinks he's answered all of Graham's responses, right? I don't think so. I'm not sure. Like, I think some have gone entirely unaddressed and, and full disclosure, Sartre later in his life said he, he even disagreed with some of the points of view put forward here. Like his, his point of view developed, but I don't know that there is any more succinct expression of what Um, existentialism is. I I still think it's a great read for any of our listeners. Okay. So one retort, well, let's, let's start with what existentialism is. Right, so existentialism is, and Thomas, you were pretty close. Existence precedes essence, or if you prefer, and some of these are direct quotes, that subjectivity subjectivity must be our point of departure. And he actually does a really good job of giving you a concrete example of this. So, say, Mr. Donaldson, mm-hmm. you are a you are uh, you make stuff, right? Okay. You run a little hardware store, and you want to make for yourself a hammer, mm-hmm. right? You conceive of the hammer, you conceive of its purpose, you you know what the handle's going to look like, you know what the head's going to look like, you know what it's going to supposed to do at the end. Mm-hmm. So as you make this hammer, right, you know what its essence is, you yeah. know what it is going to be. There's a plan, right? And how well you execute that plan is kind of up to your skill. But once it is done, the essence of the hammer has preceded the existence of the hammer, Okay. right? So for objects that are planned and created, that is true, right? Their essence, what they are going to be or what they are meant for comes before. He says with humanity, this does not happen, right? Because 
and and this is he so is non Aristotelian. <laughs> no. Yeah, he is coming from, and that's just yeah. the thing is like the whole notion of Plato's world of forms is upended. There is or no the form idea of for a telos man. Of, of human person. There yes, is there is yet. no telos. There's no anything. There's no plan. Right. And you exist because humans are the ones who give meaning. Right. We are the ones who give meaning to the things around us. We mm. name things hammers. We are the ones bestowing meaning on stuff. And more than that, he is an atheist. There, there are Christian existentialists, and we'll get to how they fit in later. But he says, if there is well, no with, God... With Kierkegaard being one of them. Kierkegaard sure. is one of them. And he says, even Doesn't if God about? were proven true, existentialism would still be a reasonable right. starting point. But, and we'll get to where. So I thought he talks about Christian existentialists in this lecture. In this, yeah, right, later. Exactly. He'll, yeah. he'll talk about how they fit in. Yeah. So he says, even if God exists, that's fine. But he assumes that God doesn't. And so because God does not exist... There is no one making a plan for humanity before man is made, right? We sort of pop onto the scene and we're the smartest, we're the, we got the biggest brains around. And so we are the ones bestowing meaning on everything else. You come into the world, right? You've popped into existence and what you do with yourself, your nature is up to you. It is subjective in that you are the one that decides it, right? So you have to find your own meaning. You have to determine your own morality. You have to determine your own standpoint. All of that stuff comes after you are in the world, right? There's nothing that will tell you what your plan is. And even if it does, you are the one that has to decide where that voice is coming from. And is it one you want to listen to, right? So your existence, right? You being in the world precedes any essence that you have. And he, and he actually uses the words human nature, Okay, so let me let me read a couple of quotes. He says, what do we mean by here by existence precedes essence? We mean that man first exists, he materializes in the world, encounters himself, and only afterward defines himself. Later, he says, thus there is no human nature since there is no God to conceive of it. Man is not only that which he conceives himself to be, but that which he wills himself to be. And since he conceives of himself only after he exists. Just as he wills himself to be after being thrown into existence, man is nothing other than what he makes of himself. This is the first principle of existentialism. Okay, thoughts so far? Makes sense. Again, I think the meaning making of uh, every human has to figure that out for themselves, I think is the like stereotype of existentialism. I don't think it's what we mean by existential crises. I don't know if you're coming back to that kind of the preface that you had. We, yeah, we can talk about that when we get back, like how that connects to how people use the word sure. today. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of the, what, I think that's a common way it gets boiled down. I, are there other parts to existentialism that he goes through? I mean, that's the, that's the essential. That the, he, okay, he does is. stretch it out a little bit, but I mean, that is the definition. That is the core. That is the core sure. of existentialism. You exist. And then any meaning in your life is determined by you. Yep. And granted, there might be other sources that can tell you what man should look like. You are the one who accepts those sources or not. Right. Right. So, yeah. Also, does, so is there, are there any examples, and they wouldn't have called it this, but are there any examples of this lo- mode of thinking in the ancient world? Are there ancient ex- existentialists? Because his argument seems to be saying, like, um, an individual person m- sort of invents it uh, after he exists. And I'm wondering if he thinks that that's also true of culture. Like, if you go all the way back to the beginning, is it all something that is that is made up? Because, you know, if you, no matter how far back you go in, in written 
descriptions about human human existence and where we come from, creation myths and all that. Even all of those stories are written as if they are sort of finally getting around to it after those stories have existed before them, right? Like uh, the um, the, um, um, the the any sort of creation myths where they're talking about where human beings have come from have always been uh, with the flavor of like this is this is the thing that we've known for a long time and now I'm writing it down for us. Yeah, and I I was thinking maybe stoicism is close, but it's it's really not. Stoicism recognizes. I was almost the opposite, right? You have to sort of submit to what to almost. It's almost more objectively. You have to submit to what objective reality is and like deal with it. Yeah, the 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 notion that there are eternal, immutable things, a priori things mm-hmm. like goodness and evil and truth and beauty and all of these things are are things that meaning that we find and therefore we exist before it's ever in the world. And so the 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 language and a viewpoint of most of the ancients was that there are some things that are eternal and incontrovertible mm-hmm. and you cannot undo them. And it's how to best adhere to them or deal with them and what things fit into what categories. Most of it is not, we make it all up. Yeah, right? I guess uh, the, the thought that I have is it, it, always, it, just, it, it, it feels like a weird argument for Sartre to say, Everybody before existentialists were basing their views of who they were on some kind of elaborate lie or some sort of received tradition and received story to make themselves comfortable. But I'm the person that has like the balls enough to say that those were all fake and it's all just your it's all about you doing it yourself. Right. Like the the, the beef is that um, um how come it took humanity so long to figure out what Sartre figured out? Atheism. For, yeah, for, I mean, for yeah. most of human history, we have, we have been adherents to some sort of divine law. I mean, even, I mean, we're talking, and I'm so, not talking just about Christianity, sure, sure, which sure, has, no, was the sure. primary viewpoint for most of the Middle Ages, at least in the Western sphere. But we also have Islam. We have... This con- is true of anything. Uh, Confucianism. There's Eastern religions, like almost Hindu, everywhere. Or even animalistic tribal religions, right? Exactly. There is always some element of divinity. And when, when in the Enlightenment, man was like, you know what, we can just do without God entirely that is where we had to deal with the philosophical ramifications of no divine. There is no eternal to adhere to. There is nobody making a plan. What do you do in the face of that? And this is, this is the genesis of existentialism, nihilism, absurdism. It's, it seems to be, to me, to be coming from all of that. Yeah, and we, have, we had, have we had atheist uh, philosophers in antiquity? That's a good question. I think there are a few. There are a few that say that there is no is no God to know. Um, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. Yeah, B- Buddha didn't believe. He said, "If there are gods, we cannot know them." He there is actually some sort agnostic. Of like gnostic spiritual realm. Um, who's the guy that said you can't step in the same river twice? Um, Error. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like he was um, atheist. But anyway, I guess my point being like, um, so Sartre just thinks that everybody leading up to this was. Fooled. Okay, I'm not going to get too far okay. into that because okay. we're going to bring in Heraclitus. How- just so I say that you cannot step in the same river twice. Okay, sorry, just to say one thing. Heraclitus. Wouldn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't anyone fit into this mold who essentially any of the great philosophical minds couldn't Sartre just take and say they had to receive something as true and then make that choice to follow it themselves? Mm-hmm. Like, in 
you're asking who's existentialist. Sartre could say everyone is existentialist yep. because they know they're going to die. They have to choose what to do in the face of death. And some of them choose to become great. And that's, that's what I associate with existentialism, that like pursuit of the best of whatever the thing you go after. Yeah. So we are like, you guys are, are right. jumping ahead and that's yeah. fine. We can, if you guys would like, we can talk about how it fits in, but I feel like I should lay more groundwork before we talk about how everybody no, else. I just wanted in. to answer that same question that Graham was go for it. For but the next you one. are, you are absolutely right. Um, that, he would say, yeah, those guys did make choices, but they had to do the same thing everybody else has to do. And just like Which you said, the they pop life. into existence, right. they have to make choices, and they have to l- figure out what voices to listen to. Their existence preceded their essence just as your existence precedes yours. Right? Okay. Uh, okay. okay. We'll, we'll come save, back to I'll it. I'll save that question for later. Okay, so let's, let's do a couple more definitions. What does subjectivism mean? He says every human's viewpoint begins with subjectivism. Uh, to look back at his definition, subjectivity must be our point of departure. So what is that? Well, he gives a definition. Subjectivism means, on the one hand, the freedom of the individual subject to choose what he will be. And on the other hand, other hand, oh, sorry, on, on the other, man's inability to transcend human subjectivity. The fundamental meaning of existentialism resides in the latter. When we say that man chooses himself, not only do we mean that each of us must choose himself, but also that in choosing himself, he chooses for all men. In fact, in creating the man, each of us wills ourselves to be. There is not a single one of our actions that does not at the same time create an image of man as we think he ought to be. Choosing to be this or that is to affirm at the same time the value of what we choose, because we can never choose evil, right? We always choose the good and nothing can be good for any of us unless it is good for all. So this is almost reminiscent of Kant's, what do we call it? The universal imperative. Basically, what you choose, you are making a statement that this is good for Everyone. all men, right. right? We cannot transcend human sub- subjectivity. You have to choose what you are. And when you choose what you are, you are basically expressing to everyone around you, this is what everyone should be. And I'm not saying like, if I choose to be a carpenter, everyone has to be a carpenter. Obviously, society couldn't hold up. But I think these are moral choices. You can choose to be a hardworking carpenter. And in that, you are saying everyone should be hardworking, just like me, right? You can choose to be a lazy bum that thinks hard work is a sham. You are saying that everyone should think hard work is a sham because it is a sham, right? That is the the quote unquote good you have chosen, right? There's no such thing as good or evil except as you will it. So when you will, you are telling everybody what's good. And this is one of those ways that he gets around the, it makes every man an island. Every time you make a choice, you are reaching out to everyone around you, not just making a choice for yourself, but making a choice about what all men should be. What about the experience of people for whom they hate their decisions and are trapped by them and continue to do them, but hate them and would never wish their conclusions on anybody else. But they're so far in the habit or the vice or the whatever that, that, and they can't get out of it. I'm not talking about even chemical addictions. I'm just, you know, uh, everybody's had that experience of, um, you don't want, you, yeah, you don't want to do the thing, but you do the thing and you know that like the thing is you wouldn't wish this on anybody else, but for whatever reason, it's, it's a vice that you have. Well, he would say that that experience doesn't exist, or he would say that deep down they're actually really willing it. I, I would, willing I would it. say the latter. Yeah, they have. If he he actually says, if you are a coward, it is because you have acted as a coward. You have made yourself that. There is no human nature that made you choose this. There is no like there is a human condition, but there is no human nature. 
You have made yourself the way you are. If you continue to choose those things, it is because you have willed it. Right? Deep down in your core, there is a will that is saying, I choose this, right? And that's the story. Although I think your argument does seem to hold a little bit of weight. Like what about those people who are deep in addiction? Right? And I mean, like the you we could bring the chemical part into it where it's like if you you know, if you've the person who just can't, you know, get off heroin, who never would want anybody to be on heroin. But that's not even what I'm thinking of. I'm just, I'm thinking of even more like, I don't know, the person who just can't, who in a social situation can't just stop lying or bragging, but is like disgusted at himself when he does it and doesn't like the kinds of people and doesn't like the kind of person that he is and yet still does the thing. Like Sartre would just say, he's choosing, he's choosing this and he's, he he's stronger than he than he thinks he is, or, or he's, or he, and that's actually how he talks about one of the. He answers one of the things is is existentialism doomy and gloomy and hopeless. He says no. In fact, we are optimistic. Some of the people that say ah the world is the way, and, and I, I actually skipped over this part because they're you know, only optimistic hey, when they're young. Little lucky it came out, but he said a lot of the people say like don't kick against the goad. You know the you'll never like if you're looking for eternal life you'll never find What's it. A goad. Uh, you poke cows with it, right? Yeah. Kicking against the goat is like trying to go, go against. against an unstoppable force. Yep. You know, like submit to the government, that sort of thing. He says, no, right? You make you make of this world what you want it to be. And he would, I think he would say to the person who is in addiction, he's like, Gosh. I am optimistic. You can get yourself out of this if you really want to make the effort. It's like a Nike commercial. Yeah, just do it. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, maybe Nike is the the first real existentialist brand. Okay, right? <laughs> just just kind of do it. Yeah. No, but I mean like this because it it's very flattering, right? To have somebody say that you have complete autonomous control over your over your your moral choices. Yes, it's empowering. You don't. I guess it's, but it's. I mean, it's optimistic. That's that's what he's saying. Is it's it's a philosophy of optimism. Sure. Um. It's a philosophy, mm, falafels, mm. Um, <laughs> falafely, oh man. No, it's a philosophy of optimism insofar it's correct. If it's not correct, then it's, then it's like it's oppression. sugar-coated oppression. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. All right. Let's, let's define Because then more. Any, any failure, any moral failure is, sorry, any moral failure is then your fault. Y- yes. yes. That, he actually says that directly yes. later. Um, I think... That'll come up in a, uh, a quote I'm about to read. So first, what does anguish mean, right? People say, that we use, they use all these words, anguish, abandoned. He's going to define those for us. And so here is anguish. He's already done subject, subjectivism. He's done existentialism. Here's what, here's what they mean by anguish. So this is what they mean, end quote. A man who commits himself and who realizes that he is not only the individual that he chooses to be, but also a legislator choosing at the same time what humanity as a whole should be. He cannot help but be aware of his own full and profound responsibility. True, many people do not appear especially anguished, but we maintain that they are merely hiding their anguish or trying not to face it. So they're avoiding their responsibility for choosing what is right for all men. And he says, okay, what if, what if someone were to ask, what would happen if everyone did what I'm, what I'm doing? The only way to evade that disturbing thought is through some kind of bad faith. Someone who lies to himself and excuses himself by saying, everyone doesn't act that way, is struggling with a bad conscience, conscience, for the act of lying implies attributing a universal value to lies. So 
if you're like, yeah, but everybody doesn't act this way. I can do whatever I want to. You are trying to weasel out of the universal imperative, right? That what you choose, you are trying, you are essentially saying it is good for all men. And that is what the anguish is. And I, I think I took away his, I, I didn't read this quote, but he essentially talks about, he equates it to a general. You are going to have to make decisions for your men, right? About what is right and what is wrong. And some of those orders come down to you from above, but in that case, you have to interpret them. You have to make the decisions about who goes, how they are put in danger, where they are put in danger. And those choices should cause you anguish as a general, like for the lives of all these people. And so as you choose your own life in this world, that is the anguish that you feel, the anguish of being absolutely responsible, not, not only for your world, but for the, the moral choices of all men, right? It's, it is almost like anguish maybe is the ray, wrong word for it. It is a, to steal a term from C.S. Lewis, it is the weight of glory, it is knowing that you are making these really weighty decisions. That is the anguish he's talking about. It's not just generally feeling bad that the world is doomy and gloomy. It's the weight of decision-making. What if you're a general who doesn't care? Then you are saying that all, the men all get people butchered. shouldn't care. Yeah. And that is, that is a horrible anguish that you feel. But we or, can't, but there's no judgment that we can place upon him. Judgment's coming. Okay. Yep. He sure is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And he also gives the example of Abraham, right? He, he got an order from God to sacrifice his child, but he had to make choices when that voice came down. To do it. Right. Was it, was it really an angel? Was it really right. the voice of God? Is he the kind of guy who is going to make that choice? Is that commensurate with a God who is generally merciful? He's got all these weird choices to make. And so he, but he still has to make them. There is still a subjectivity there. Okay. Let's go and define abandonment. Abandonment means God doesn't exist, right? And we bear the full consequence of that ah, we assertion. Are, we are abandoned. That's right? what he means by that. Okay, let's see. So he, he, he talks about how when God was originally done away with, quote unquote, he, more, the, the philosophers of that age are like, we essentially need to fight to reestablish the eternals because we would still like to have society, right? So we're going to do away with God, but still keep all the morals, right? We can still have the same standards of honesty, progress, and humanism, and we will have turned God into an obsolete hypothesis that will die quietly out on its own. He says, existentialists, on the other hand, find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists, for along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There could no longer be any a priori good, since there would be no infinite and perfect consciousness, consciousness to conceive of it. So we have to deal with that abandonment. And here is where the story of your guy comes in. A waiter. Yeah. Is he a waiter? That's what I, I remember. I forget. He's a student of his. Okay. So he comes and he's looking for advice. And so this student is in a weird position. He's, he is seeing the deaths of his countrymen and he feels compelled to go to war. Yes. But he, I think it was his brother and his father who got killed. And so his mother is, she's got only him left. Yes. Right. And so he has to choose between staying with his mother and being her only comfort or leaving his mother risking his own death and going and fighting on the front lines, which he sees as not only helping his country and a, a universal moral good, but avenging the deaths of his brother and father. Now he knows he could get waylaid. Once he gets there, he could get stuck in a paper pushing job. He could be stuck at a desk, no vengeance to be had. He, he might not even be very helpful. He could, he could get there day one and die. He right. knows that. And in so doing, he would abandon his mother. Right. But if he stays with his mom, he's abandoning his men. Sartre points out that there is no real good guidance for this. Even if we apply uh, appeal to Kant, who says you must make the choice that like, 
that all men would make and never treat man as an as a means rather than an end. Right. In both situations, you are treating one group of people as a means and the other as an end, right? If he stays with his mom, he's treating his mom as an end, but his countrymen as a means to right. allow him to stay, right? Right. If he leaves and goes with a countryman, he's treating his countrymen as an end and the yes. anguish of his mom right. kind of as a means to get there, right. I guess. Mm-hmm. Isn't this also, so he tries to bring in a Christian perspective and he like quotes one Bible verse and he's like, this tells us nothing about how to approach this issue. Yeah, his point is there's nothing There's nothing in scripture that points this out, yeah. out to us. There's nothing that tells him exactly what to do in the situation. Yeah, he has to make the choice, yes. right? And so there's... The only thing he can do is appeal to his own instincts, make his own choices. And even in talking to... Wait, wait, wait. His what? Ah, you caught it. Instinct. Hmm. He says, appeal to your own instincts. We'll come back to that. Nice catch. And that's the only thing he can do. And even in appealing to Sartre for guidance, he's already made a choice. He knows what kind of advice Sartre is going to give. I mean, anyone that studied under Sartre knows exactly (laughs) what kind of advice he's going to give. It's like... Do we want make the choice? You yeah. ding dong. Right. That's that's the advice that's going to come. Is you are free. Make the choice that appeals to your own freedom. Go for it, bud. Yeah. And and that's it. But but there is our abandonment. We are in a situation where that's that's it, right? So despair. Definition of despair. Very simple meaning. It says, "quote that we must limit ourselves to reckoning only with those things that depend on our will or on the set of probabilities that enable action." So we are doing only the things that we can will. So we cannot live for hope. We cannot appeal to God. We cannot appeal to anything else, our dreams. We can appeal to those things which are actualized by our will and that only, right? It's all about optimism, right? We are the sum of our own actions and nothing more in this life, right? And I will quote, let's see. uh, In view of this, we can clearly understand why our doctrine horrifies many people. For they often have no other way of putting up with their misery than to think, circumstances have been against me. I deserve a much better life than the one I have. Admittedly, I've never experienced a great love or extraordinary friendship, but that's because I never met a man or woman worthy of it. If I've written no great books, it's because I never had the leisure to do so. If I have no children to whom I could devote myself, it's because I didn't find a man with whom I could share my life. So I have within me a host of untried but Perfectly viable abilities, inclinations, and possibilities that endow me with worthiness not evident from any examination of my past actions. In reality, however, for existentialists, there is no love other than the deeds of love, no potential for love other than that which is manifested in loving. There is no genius other than that which is expressed in works of art. The genius of Proust, 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 resides in the totality of his works. The genius of Proust. Didn't you mispronounce this? Been calling him Faust. Faust and Proust is not right. And then Proust. I've people tell me, and I can never remember which it is. Hold on, this is gonna. Hold on, you keep going. You do. You do. It's found in the series of tragedies outside of which there is nothing. And this is where I wrote down: If you're a coward, it's not your temperament that made you that way. It's your own actions, right? That is despair. The despair is that you have no outside thing to appeal to other than yourself. Yeah, no one to blame but yourself. Exactly, no one to blame but yourself, and that is despair. What is it? Hold on. Proust. Hmm. Proust. I stand corrected by, by the animated lady on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So a few last notes, and then we can talk about your guys' objections and my own thoughts. So he also says that this is one of the only philosophies that maintains human dignity. We become an actor rather than a subject, right? We are not subject to anybody else's will but our own, right? It is a, 
I, I, it, it is reminiscent almost of absurdism where it, it lends sort of a romantic feeling to life. You are what you will yourself to be. It's undignified to be a subject. That's an assumption, okay. I think, that he, he makes. He also says that you cannot be anything unless you sort of are recognized by another, right? Through others is how I have sort of knowledge of myself. And so it isn't a lonely philosophy. And you are talking, whenever you make a choice, you're making a choice for all men. And there is no universal essence comprising your nature, but we do have a condition. Like, we will die, right? There are things common in all men. And he also says, because there is a universality of experience. This one I found weird. So any man is capable of understanding any human project. This should not be taken to mean that a certain project defines man forever, but that it can be reinvented again and again. Given sufficient information, one can always find a way to understand an idiot, a child, a person from a so-called primitive culture, or a foreigner, right? Man, because of our condition is the same, we understand sort of all of our common aims, right? And I think that might be how he answers the commonality and a lot of the morals that pop up, right? We have a lot of human common aims because of a common condition, but no common nature. And the, that condition is? Death. Uh, yeah. You exist. We- your existence precedes your essence and you will die. And, I think that's the very basics. And all people having to grapple with their death have come to some common conclusions. So those ideas have come after they were born, not they weren't imprinted with that before they were born is gotcha. what I think Sartre would say. Okay, here is, and there, there's two last things, audience, I promise I'm only going to give you like two or three more quotes. This one's long and this is about how we judge. So, nevertheless, we can pass judgment For as I said, we choose in the presence of others, and we choose ourselves in the presence of others. First, we may judge, and this may be a logical rather than a value judgment, that certain choices are based on error and others on truth. We may also judge a man when we assert that he is acting in bad faith. If we define a man's situation as one of free choice, in which he has no recourse to excuses or outside aid, then any man who takes refuge behind his passions, any man who fabricates some deterministic theory, is operating on bad faith. One might object by saying, but why shouldn't he choose bad faith, right? If you choose, why not choose bad faith? And he says, my answer is that I do not pass moral judgment against him, but I call his bad faith an error. Here we cannot avoid making a judgment of truth. Bad faith is obviously a lie because it is a dissimulation of man's full freedom of commitment. On the same grounds, I would say that I am also acting in bad faith if I declare that I am bound to uphold certain values, because it's a contradiction to embrace these values while at the same time affirming that I am bound by them. If someone were to ask me, but if I want to be in bad faith, I would reply, there's no reason why you should not be, but I declare that you are, and that a strictly consistent attitude alone demonstrates good faith. What is more, I am able to bring a moral judgment to bear when I affirm that freedom under any concrete circumstance can have no other aim than itself. And once a man realizes in his state of abandonment that it is he who imposes values, he can will but one thing, freedom as the foundation of all values. And to follow up on the quote, he says, we will, we will freedom for freedom's sake through our own individual circumstances. So to, to summarize, audience, we, we can judge, but it must be a judgment not of like moral worth but of error and non-error, like logical kind of. And if someone's acting in bad faith and seeing like, yeah, I want to act like I don't have any moral choice. He's like, well, that's an error. You're being a doofus, but you do you, bud. <laughs> exactly. I think that's the conclusion we must draw. Is okay. that is that a reasonable way to summarize? 
yeah, this is the point you made before is that some people make bad choices and continue in those bad choices. Some part of it is habit and some part of it is personal choice, right? And there people are free to make those choices um, as long as they don't impact someone else, as long as they're not, you know, I'm going to become a warlord now. Like, I don't know if he goes into that though, of like, you can't harm people under this. Uh, he doesn't at all. Exactly. You so, can't. I mean, there's no value that says you can't. I'm sure. Uh, no, you're an error because it's selfish. You are know. willing your own freedom. If they're willing their freedom, true. they have the right to fight you. That is true. Right? That is right. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip the bit on Christians because we've essentially said how they come in. And that's that, like, even if you affirm God exists, it makes no difference. Right? We still have to rediscover yourself and and sort of act within our existence. Like, we are in the world before we can say, yes, I believe in God. Right? Okay. So, to to round out some of your objections, your, your objections that were not the ones that he was answering. So Donaldson, you, you got your, uh, your feathers up when he said instinct. Why? Because he was saying that at some point a human person is appealing to, and then he said appealing to instinct. So that man has to appeal to his instinct as to whether or not it is. He should abandon his mom or go to He should abandon his mother or abandon his country, yeah. right? And um, to say that you're appealing to instinct is, is, to, is like, okay, you're appealing to what? What is that thing that he is appealing to when he's talking about instinct? Might you call it a human nature? Yeah, <laughs> human nature. So is it a biological instinct? Um, and and this, is, uh, uh, this is what Lewis goes into when he, when he criticizes this, very, this specific line of argumentation that, we, that if there is no objective morality, it is on human instinct, if it's biological instinct, well then, um, you know, I don't know if you want to go into the into Lewis's claim on biological instinct, but but the point. Well, being, he says like instinct will often has to have to choose between two instincts. Yes, right. Yeah. He has an instinct to love his mother his, mom, and an instinct to, to be a good friend, to be a good friend. Yes, be because a, being be in a you know because it's biologically good to band together for safety, right? Um, so but your point is that when you appeal to instinct, you're appealing to to something we cannot like we know not what. Yes, and that's probably best defined as morality or human nature. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, um, yeah, by, by sort of going back and saying that man is appealing to instinct. Well, then he's appealing to something, what that is after his existence. Exactly. Or, pre- or, or, or before, before his existence. And I would say something to. before. And right? if he says this, and, and if Sartre was saying it's appealing to something after his existence, then my initial question of then how do everybody who doesn't have this same, Maybe we have the same biological instinct, but if we don't have the same sort of like moral framework, then how did how did uh, civilizations uh, spread over time and culture like come to very similar conclusions? Um, yeah, and, and the answer may be that it's that it's f- driven from biological instinct, and, and that's usually where this argument then gets the traction is. And so you have like sort of the modern atheists will make the argument. Uh, what's that dude's name? Um, um, oh, he's the meditation guy. He does a Sam podcast, Harris. Sam Harris. So that's Sam Harris's big point, which is that it, it's it's flowing out of a biological place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and C.S. Lewis talks about how that cannot be the case, right? Because yeah. often you have to choose between two biological imperatives, mm-hmm. right? When you see someone in trouble, mm-hmm. you have two instincts. One is to help that person and risk your own skin. The other is to run away like a ninny. Mm-hmm. One of those things you'll feel ba- feel bad about doing right? Running away like a ninny and letting that other person get hurt. Mm-hmm. One of those things you'll feel good about doing, even though it means your possible death. Yeah. So something is choosing between those instincts and to call that, th- 
that choosing thing, yes. also an instinct, feels like an error. And also risking your own death and therefore the lack of ability to spread your biological material. Um, uh, but it is still the thing that, it, that you feel bad about. doesn't seem to jive. But you can, you can make the argument that we are a, we are a social species, and so saving the, those in trouble is, is an imperative that actually helps the, the horde. But... The stronger instinct is definitely to run away, right? Yeah, and so you then, have to choose the lesser. But then biologically, instinct. we would only feel that if if it was if we could make the value judgment on the quality of the person in danger, right? Yeah. If it's an old and man, and it doesn't seem like, yes, you have to weigh yourself and your own biological imperative against the yeah. old one. And so then the, the 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 sort of the natural human pity then doesn't seem to jive with that. Anyway, yeah. but that's that's sort of yes, that was my beef with that idea when he sort of is making that appeal to instinct. Okay, I, I, along with you, the thing that kind of got my feathers up as I was reading through this, and I, we're going to talk about some of my objections here, if that's okay too, is he, when he says we will freedom for freedom's sake through our individual circumstances. My question is, why is freedom good? Like, and and this is this is an objection to a lot of uh, same same objection I have to absurdism is that it appeals to certain things as good in and of themselves. When he says we appeal to freedom for freedom's sake, why that's does, an why eternal. Why does freedom's sake get? The, he is get appealing the, yeah. to an a priori truth, and that is that freedom is good. And he makes the same mistake earlier to when talking about judgment. Right? He assumes that error is a is a bad, and truth is a good. He doesn't say it. But he makes that assumption, yeah. knowing truth is better than knowing evil. And we can only make that as a value judgment a priori, right? All men know this. We know it as we exist in the world, right? It's not something I've willed. It's just a thing. And so he is making these value judgments, even though he is claiming that he is not, right? There is a good there that he appeals to for itself as a, what do you call it? A transcendental, right? Mm -hmm. It's it is good in and of itself. It's an eternal freedom is good. And we appeal to it just because it's freedom. And that's a, that's a judgment. It's a moral judgment. So you also, uh, talked about, Oh, another thing that came up to my mind as I was reading this is recently I've been, I, I looked back through the abolition of man. Sorry to re reference Lewis so often listener, but he has a lot of things to say about this, that when he talks about uh, the guys who choose what man will be next, like the conditioner in the third chapter of C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, like if we, if we really can, I'll say genetically choose what the next, next generation looks like, the person who's making or those values. decisions about the values of the next generation is therefore no longer human. He, he gets to choose what humanity will be. And what Sartre is doing is putting every single person in that same boat. Every person is someone that is almost non-human because you get to choose what humanity is. And the only way that you can do that is by appealing to your most base instincts, right? What makes me feel good, what I happen to enjoy sexually, what I like as far as food and drink goes, like the way that I'm going to will myself into existence, I can only appeal to, I think what he would call instinct. And he says, I mean, if, if we make freedom an instinct, right? So it basically reduces man to his most natural bodily functions and therefore lets nature conquer man again, right? Like that's C.S. Lewis's argument, sure. and it's kind of roundabout. It's just something he, that he came up. He would not say that because what man makes of these things is not out of these desires for a grand existence. We make cities and civilizations. We don't just make, you know, uh, society has still like moved along by man's fear of death and wanting to do something with their life. I understand yeah, we don't make cathedrals because we fear death, though. He would say we do. Yeah. He would say we want to leave something after us that, well, 
I, I don't know if you would say that we care about what happens after we die, but in life we want to do something grand. Sure. Therefore we build cathedrals or cities or whatever. And that's my other alarm. My other thing is that he never really gives a satisfying answer for, okay, so I will freedom for freedom's sake. And I do all these things and I've willed myself to be the way that I think all men should be. But then death wipes me out. Yeah. And that feels like, I, I think he is maybe misunderstanding the anguish and the doom and gloom because my beef with it is not that in life it is a pessimistic viewpoint. It seems like in life it's awfully optimistic. You can make of yourself what you want. Mine is that so you've made something of yourself and then you die. And then you die. Yeah. And and yeah. But like what and posterity will say who cares? Attributing right? attributing egoism or egotism as the as the driving force behind all culture, beauty and art seems like that, that, that seems kind of short-sighted. It doesn't seem like that works. I, I mean, you, this is what you're taught when you're a little kid, right? They did, they made the pyramids because uh, the, the, the 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 pharaoh made the pyramids because he was like proud and wanted to be seen as better than everybody else, maybe. Uh, or we, you know, the artist who paints the beautiful painting because he wants to like, you know, be a big swinger at a party. Uh, it just, I mean, it just doesn't. He just want because it's sort of driven by ego. Um, it just seems like that's not a very charitable answer for. Uh, the, the creation of, of, of beautiful and good things and things that like take multiple, multiple generations to, to finish. Like he would say the reason, you know, the, uh, the Chartres Cathedral is because the is person the, whose name we don't even know right. because they did that on purpose uh, is doing this so that he can like live forever. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that. Or he would say that the guy was mistaken. He believed in a God that doesn't exist. Yeah, well. that, That's what most of it would come down to. I don't think, but he wouldn't say egoism. Again, it's about the human condition is that we die. So that's a, that's the given in this worldview. Mm. So you kind of have to take that out of the consideration. It's okay. You're going to die. What do you do in the meantime? Do you mope about that? Do you just accept whatever life has given you? Or do you make something of the life in front of you? And existentialism would say, make something. Maybe you probably would know the answer to this, the best out of the three of us. How do you think this differs from like Ayn Rand's objectivism? I don't think existentialism would call this selfishness. And I understand that objectivism views selfishness as a good thing. Yeah. I think Ayn Rand wrote a book called why selfishness is good or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe, maybe that's better to tease out in the yeah. after, in the yeah, after we got time. Like two minutes right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so to give a quick definition of, did we talk about what an existential crisis is already? No. Nope. Nope. So existential crisis. It's a ninth would, grader who's really busy. <laughs> so you've popped into the world. You realize that one day you will die and that you must create your own meaning. It is your crisis with, I am here and I am going to decide what that means. That's an existential crisis as far as I can piece together. So the only way that I can figure that absurdism changes from this is that it says any attempts to build meaning out of the world Total waste. is a waste of time because there is no meaning to be found. Right. You give it all. And so as you try to piece meaning together from everything around you, it's, it is a hopeless and futile enterprise. And that is where waiting for Godot comes in. It's, right. They're just waiting around trying to make meaning of something, and they simply can't. It's, it's a pointless try. Yes. I wonder if you would... This, uh, this is a terrible way to end an episode. Sorry. I wonder if you would get more out of a Godot episode by comparing... Again, the point of it is to portray a certain philosophy. Where are, where are there other plays where characters are waiting for someone and how are those different over time? Because again, that's also Robin Hood. Sure. Existentialism comes out of a moment and it like shows a cultural view toward the sure. world. Um, that has not always been, this was, I think Graham's point from before this, this has not always been the view of the world. 
I would just say there, I think there are lots of positives to existentialism. I think people should make something of their lives and I think should take seriously that they will die one day. Right. Oh, and I'm, I'm actually really sympathetic to both the absurdist and existential viewpoints. Yeah. Like I do feel a certain amount of, and I know that most Christians I've talked to feel a certain amount of angst when thinking about their faith. Like people have doubts, people have all of these things. And where I land is that there is a plan for man. And my essence was a thing before I popped into the world, but I still have to interact with it. And so that, that same existential anguish and angst that comes with, you know, man's search for meaning. I think we've all felt man's search for meaning and audience. If you're, if you're an existentialist out there, who's yelling at me, well, just know that I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. And that's why I keep on bringing this up, I guess, is that I have felt that like late night, dark night of the soul anxiety of I am, I am definitely going to die and I have to sort of come to grips with what that means for me and the choices that I make. Right. Cool. Well, this has <laughs> been Classical Stuff You Should Know with Graham A. Jane Thomas. Um, we have after episodes where we continue the conversation, uh, sometimes, and we let sort of more free flowing. We can take it in a bunch of different directions. We'll probably talk about Bitcoin. No, I was kidding. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh you're autumn. Moon phases. Um, <laughs> moon phases and, and Bitcoin. Uh, Isn't um, it a full moon right now? You can also on the, um, bye, bye, bye. Four, no, December 4th. <laughs> um, you can uh, email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find our back, back episodes on classicalstuff.net. Um, you can tweet at us at CLSSCAL on the Twitters, and it's me uh, uh, liking the things you send us. And it's me replying to email. Oh, and then it's and Thomas, rep- and Thomas replies to most of the emails. And thank you so and, much, Thomas. Yeah. And, There's a couple there that I still need to reply to. You can leave the. I, I'm on it. Um, sure. We have a Patreon, so you can uh, patronize us, and there are some tranches or tiers that you can take part in. We're about um, to record a monthly AMA. So. And we record a monthly AMA, so if you have questions for the guys, uh, we will answer it on a monthly basis. Anyway, so uh, this is us signing off, and thanks for listening. Ciao. Bye.